Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today I am proud to continue our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. Of course, the Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place at noon Wednesdays in the Ina Dillard Russell Library on the campus of Georgia College in downtown Milledgeville. These events are free and open to the public, so if this discussion sparks your interest, please consider joining the conversation again at noon, Wednesdays, in the Georgia College Library. Today we'll be talking about free speech on the college campus and how this cornerstone of a democratic government and a liberal education is evolving or devolving in the 21st century. Joining me today to preview the Times Talk entitled, More or Less Speech. Georgia's new law in our First Amendment rights on campus is Georgia College mass communication professor, Pate McMichael. Pate, thank you for joining me again at the outset of this new season of The Times Talk. Thanks, Daniel. Always a pleasure. Now, of course, our college campuses pride themselves on being a launching pad for the free exchange of ideas and knowledge. How is that holding up during these turbulent times? It's a great question. If you just look at media reports, you might think not so good. But to me, I actually think they're doing probably better than what we would have expected, primarily because we're seeing speech. Unfortunately, some of it might be outside the bounds of what's legal. But the fact that we're seeing a lot of speech on college campuses, the fact that we're having controversies, tells me that universities are places where important discussions are happening, although we might not all uh, be as excited about one discussion versus another. But certainly it's trying times for administrators and it's trying times for state governments and politicians who are under pressure to make sure that campuses are not out of control and are not creating situations that are putting them in a bind. As we think about these important aspects of the American way of life, is the current time an aberration from this 200 plus year experiment or a a return to the regular? I I think colleges are under a lot of pressure to, you know, financially keep themselves uh, afloat. And so events that create controversy are going to be a huge threat to that because they might scare away potential students. But looking at it historically, colleges have always been places where You know, controversial ideas are talked about, discussed sometimes with a lot of passion. There are examples throughout our history where colleges have been crime scenes, right? And speech has devolved into violence, sometimes between two different groups, sometimes between a controversial group and, you know, law enforcement. So it seems like, in my opinion, that in heated, controversial, divided times, it seems kind of natural for a college to find itself in the midst of that, to be a reflection of what's happening across the country. Now, in response to the first question, uh, you, or at least I perceived a sense of, of optimism about these hard debates uh, that are going on on these college campuses. Uh, of course, we are representative of the media. It's so easy for us to look back at Charlottesville, actions that happened just a few weeks ago at the University of uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and um, really focus on uh, violence, um, destruction of property. Um, what are the aspects that are lending a, a kind of a, a more uh, optimistic view uh, to you? Well, certainly, you know, I'm not optimistic when I see violence. That's awful. And we have to discourage that because the First Amendment is not going to protect violent speech. But you you can always focus on, you know, the shiny object. And Charlottesville was healthy in one regard. It woke a lot of people up. It made a lot of students realize that if they do feel strongly about their views, um, they are going to need to stand up and make their views heard because there might be other groups out there that are more organized and maybe less committed uh, to tolerance and uh, respect and some of the foundational values that we associate with colleges. So I, 
you know, I'm optimistic because what we're seeing is more people getting involved in the political system, more people speaking out in ways that they might not have felt comfortable in years past. They might have been too complacent in years past, and now they're maybe having to decide what kind of world they want to live in. And so that's what the First Amendment's there for. Uh, it's there to help us find our way through this democratic process and make better decisions as voters and as citizens. When we think about these ideas of, of freedom of speech, the free marketplace of ideas, we usually think about their relation to college campuses as more of an academic exercise. But in this conversation, we're talking about a, a real, tangible, physical um uh, some would say battleground, uh, some um, would say forum of these ideas. Uh, why college campuses? Well, I think college campuses have become one of many ways for us to engage in the polarization that's going on. And so college campuses do have maybe a reputation for harboring more liberal attitudes. And then more recently, as we've had you know, controversy around certain speakers, We've seen these campuses sometimes get into very media-centric stories where folks are getting shouted down. So there's something about a college campus because it's a gateway to a better life. It's a place where you're supposed to really have thoughtful people and you maybe are trying to solve some of the bigger issues in society. Why now? I think because folks are concerned about the world. And our solutions on how we should move forward are very different, and we're very divided. And so, yes, it's bringing out passion, and it's bringing out some of the things that are not always comfortable for the rest of society, right? Division, in some cases, hate. And these are powerful emotions. And on a college campus, you've generally been free to express a wide range of those types of views. Maybe you don't feel as comfortable expressing those views on the workplace, place where you've got to get your paycheck. But on a college campus, you feel like you have those First Amendment rights, particularly a public university. And how comfortable are you with this being the venue for that conversation? I'm very comfortable with it, I think, because the law has made it clear that it has to be that venue. It's not our decision to decide whether colleges are going to be places where there's broad First Amendment rights. The Supreme Court has made this crystal clear through a mountain of precedents that we have got to tolerate even the most um, abhorrent views on college campuses, but not just there in many other public squares that we uh, fund with taxpayer dollars. So it's it's more of the inevitable and I think the correct application of the First Amendment that our college campus, like every other college campus that's publicly funded, has to provide forums for even the most hateful speech. The, I think the question we're really having, though, as a society is about the heckler's veto about whether or not there's a right to counter-protest and how do we make that work without creating violence and censorship. That word's getting thrown around a lot, censorship, and I think some of the solutions we're seeing may be creating unintended consequences that could lead to more censorship, but that's a heavily debated view. But it has been the counter-protesting more so than the expression of ideas that I think has led to new legislation and the really divided uh, solutions that, that people seem to be coming up with. All right. Well, we will... 
talk more about that when we return. Uh, but right now, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Georgia College Connections. We, of course, are having another of our Times Talk conversations. Uh, this week, we are previewing the conversation More or Less Speech, Georgia's new law in your First Amendment rights on campus. Today, I'm talking with Georgia College Mass Communication Professor Pate McMichael. He will be leading the next Times Talk, which will take place this Wednesday at noon in the Georgia College Library. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you are just joining us, we, of course, are having another of our Times Talk conversations. This week, we are previewing the conversation More or Less Speech, Georgia's New Law and Your First Amendment Rights on Campus. Um, as it is our first show of this season, I will, of course, say that um, we will hold this conversation in real time at noon on Wednesday in the Georgia College Library. That conversation will be led by today's guest. Pate McMichael, who is a Georgia College mass communication professor. I always feel like when we talk about freedom of speech that we should go back and kind of talk a little bit about it, maybe even go as far as defining it. So what does the U.S. Constitution provide in the way of protection of freedom of speech? That's a great question. You can read the First Amendment, but that won't necessarily give you the full scope of what's protected and what isn't. Uh, certainly, it protects the right to assemble, the right to speak, the right of the press, the right to practice different religions. That's written in the First Amendment. But then when you try to apply it, the question is, where can the government step in to prevent violence? And I, I always tell my students that violence is the end of law because that's where you're running afoul of it. And so... The Supreme Court did not do a good job of this for many, uh, not just decades, for a couple of centuries, really. In 1919, we finally got a decision where the courts tried to decide, do you have the right to protest the war? And up until 1969, I would say the court made a lot of really bad decisions that censored people because they had unpopular views. Maybe they were thought to be communists. Maybe they were protesting the war. And there were a lot of easy ways for the government to justify censorship. Now, because of a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio, the government, if they want to really shut down a protest, has to prove that there's a threat of imminent lawless action. And, you know, only a few of the situations that have happened recently on college campuses rise to that level. Charlottesville did, but it was something that maybe wasn't originally discernible. I think a lot of the blame there goes to the police and the way they handle that situation and let it spiral out of control. But when you take it from there, we have another case from 2012 called Snyder versus Phelps, where Westboro Baptist Church, which is an extremely controversial group, I would say a hate speech group, they won the right to protest at a soldier's funeral. They couldn't do it on the grounds, of course, but they were allowed to be relatively close to where the funeral happened because they were protesting government policy. They were protesting the war. And the Supreme Court of the United States upheld their right to do that. Uh, many, many people hated that decision, but it just shows you how broad the right is. If you could protest at a soldier's funeral, then some of these debates we're having about college speech seem kind of trivial. That's how broad the right is, and it's continued to get expanded. That's kind of the way the courts have thought about it, that you know, more speech is better than less speech. And, of course, you're talking with some young, impressionable minds in your role as a college professor. What are some of the common misconceptions that people have, not just college students, but people you run into and talk with these issues about, about the freedom of speech? I think the one that's most disturbing now is the idea that hate speech is not protected speech, which is not true. White nationalists, white supremacists, those groups are free to speak the same that someone who supports democracy and tolerance is free to speak. 
what they're not allowed to do, right, is to commit acts of violence during a protest or plan acts of violence. Conspiracy would be unprotected if you're planning violence. So, yeah, that's a big misconception. I think other misconceptions that people have is that maybe they also have a right not to be associated with that speech when it comes to their school. Like, you go to school here, so you should have a right to go to a school that doesn't bring in speakers who have unpopular views. And and that simply is nonsense, right? Uh, you don't have a right as a member of a college or as a student to then dictate what other people and ideas they can receive. And so if a group of students wants to bring a very controversial speaker to this campus, they have every right to do that. And you also have a right to vocalize the fact that you don't agree with it. Uh, that seems to be where the tension is. And I, I, I do think that some people think they can shut down speakers. They might think that it's legal to silence other voices. You know, that's getting much closer to the line of imminent lawless action because you're getting in a situation where there might be fighting words exchanged, and fighting words are considered to be outside the scope of the First Amendment. And but how do we ferret out when that line is crossed, uh, especially in terms of, of fighting words? Um, I, of course, am not as prepared as you, uh, but you know there have been court cases that looked at um, utterances of, well, we're going to take the streets uh, versus um, things uh, like you mentioned there about conspiracy. How do we you know, demarcate um, something that implies a threat? Um, when does that cross the line? It's probably the most difficult part of the First Amendment is who gets to make the decision to silence speech and what is a true threat and what is fighting words. Generally, I think it's best handled on a case-by-case situation, but it can also arise so quickly and people can hear two different things in a speaker's voice. And that may be where it requires some kind of law enforcement presence to deter two groups that are shouting at each other from getting too close. And a heckler's warning is not a bad approach to that to sort of remind everyone or to have an intervention. But, you know, colleges don't want to spend all that money on security. Uh, They do have police departments now, but they didn't really have them as much when I started school. So they've beefed up security so much on college campuses, but colleges don't necessarily want to be in the position of, providing security for every single event where there's people using their First Amendment rights. That just seems un-American in a way to have to have cops everywhere people are speaking. Now, in that last response, you just mentioned a heckler's warning, which I think is a, uh, a predisposition to have uh, to try to avoid a heckler's veto, which you mentioned in the last. Uh, might you talk about those ideas now as they do play such an important role for this conversation? Right. So in our history, one way to maybe silence an unpopular view would be to amass so many people against it that a university in this case would just cancel the speaker. I believe the University of Florida canceled an event where Richard Spencer was supposed to speak about a year ago, maybe a little longer. And so that would be an instance where the heckler's veto was probably unconstitutional because the school decided that the voices against the speaker were more important than the speaker's voice and the price of security was too high. You you can't really do that. Universities have a responsibility to treat all speakers the same way, including how they charge and what they charge a group to bring in a controversial speaker. Everybody's got to pay the same price, and it really doesn't matter how many counter-protesters are going to show up. I, I think that's you know one of the, the misnomers is that if you get enough people to shout someone down, they'll go away. That's not really what the First Amendment is about. You have to allow those voices on campus, and the university has to provide a forum for them to speak, and it is the responsibility of the university to protect those controversial voices. Well, I just want to go back to that idea of the heckler's veto, and I want to try to 
uh, define it for our audience, and you critique my uh, thought on this one, it's that um, generally a heckler's veto is when a governing body shuts down an event before it happens over public safety concerns that the counter-protest to that form of speech may cause a opportunity for violence. That's, that's exactly right. And so in that way, right, the heckler in this case wins out because... They have pressured the governing body into censoring speech. Yes, and and so it's a very dangerous thing because uh, you can also imagine a situation where the heckler's not a sympathetic figure, right? Like during the civil rights movement, you know, imagine Dr. King not being allowed to do protests or, uh, you know, Shall we say like the march on Washington being shut down uh, for the idea that violence could happen on the streets of the Capitol? It was very common in the civil rights era for protests to be shut down. Oh, the Klan's going to show up and they're going to kill somebody. So we can't allow you to protest uh, segregation, right? If you go down that road, then you're basically just conceding defeat and, in fact, handing victory to the heckler. So I think there's good reasons why universities can't find that easy way out of this problem. It's just historically anti-democratic to do that. Well, we're going to take another short break right now. If you are just joining us, we, of course, are having another of our Times Talk conversations on the Georgia College Connections. This week, we are previewing the upcoming Times Talk entitled More or Less Speech, Georgia's New Law and Your First Amendment Rights on Campus. Today, I'm speaking with Georgia College Mass Communication Professor Pate McMichael. We'll be back with more as we preview this live conversation, which again will happen at noon on Wednesday in the Georgia College Library. Stay tuned for more. Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Of course, we are having another of our Times Talk conversations. This week, we are looking forward to the conversation, More or Less Speech, Georgia's New Law and Your First Amendment Rights on Campus. I'm joined today by Georgia College Mass Communications Professor Pate McMichael. Uh, Now, in that last segment, we were talking about free speech, uh, what is protected by the U.S. Constitution, what crosses a line over into unprotected speech, and how does this apply to our universities and colleges? Um, I thought I'd ask that question directly to start off this next segment. Uh, Why are colleges and universities places of special consideration when you're thinking about free speech? We look at our universities, and it's one of the real pride points Uh, of being an American, that we have so many great universities, and we have so many leaders that are the product of our universities. And then we have such a rich history of great leaders coming out of these universities. And those were, of course, you know, um, very important years of people's lives where they really learned to think for themselves. And so colleges are unique in that sense because people become adults, hopefully, in the four years that they are on a campus, you know, you come here when you're 18 and you have to learn to really mature and think for yourself and make your own decisions. So it's kind of natural in that sense because young college kids are generally getting a lot of cognitive dissonance in their brains. They're, they're hearing something from their parents, but they're also hearing new ideas at school and they have to decide how they're going to live their own lives. And so I think that makes them fertile ground for discussion and for protest. And of course, we look back at our most controversial moments. It was universities that were often generators of some of the ideas that we now consider to be right and wrong, but they might have also been physically the places where certain events happened, like the Kent State shootings. 
that are so synonymous with the Vietnam War and the protests of that era. So unfortunately, as, as the country's gotten more divided since Vietnam, which I do think is an important historical moment when our divisions became more crystallized, colleges have taken on maybe a much more controversial and, and people view them in much more controversial lights. Like maybe they're bastions for liberalism and they're excluding voices that don't fit in with that, right? So I do know that many conservatives feel out of place on certain campuses. They maybe feel alone and they don't feel like their viewpoints are respected. So they are in a spiral of silence. And uh, that's been a consistent theme that conservative groups have continued to reinforce uh, through their public policy and their literature. But one aspect that I'm not sure that we've uh, addressed uh, specifically um, outside of the friction points of why it's, this conversation is so prescient on the college campuses is that um, a college is a unique environment in which, especially in a public university setting, the government is actually kind of uh, coming in and having some kind of fiduciary trust over these young minds that are there. And when I think about uh, the First Amendment, I, I think one of the misconceptions that I commonly find with people is that the First Amendment protects your speech from the government. And this is a and a college and a university is a place where, in a sense, the government is actually almost caring for you. And so the way that they um, handle speech that goes on in that environment is of utmost importance um, when we talk about the freedoms that are um, protected within the, the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, it's kind of gotten weird in that sense because definitely, you know, what is the First Amendment about? It's about protecting us from government power. And yet here we are getting this opportunity to learn and have a subsidized education because of government. And so now we're in a situation where it's gotten more expensive to go to college and the government is more sensitive to negative stories that associate its name with controversy. And so we're having this debate about, should we clamp down again on free speech? You know, again, the First Amendment protects you from the government. And so my advice to a young person who wants to speak out and feels they can't is to Read the Constitution. You have those rights. Universities can't take those rights from you. I don't think a lot of universities want to take those rights from you, but certainly there have been some uh, very strange uh, policies put in place in certain places. And in many cases, it seems as if administrators would be more comfortable with less speech because it brings less attention and less media coverage. And we can get on with you know, increasing enrollment and uh, making sure that the financial security of the university is not in jeopardy. So I do think there's a financial component to this that's very interesting. And I think um, there's also a, a questioning in American culture about do we want public schools or not? Do we value public schools or do we need to privatize everything? That's going to be a continuing debate because we're seeing that debate play out, not just at colleges, but all across education. Well, and when you talk about privatizing education, uh, do private colleges and universities have the same responsibilities for uh, adhering to thoughts about um, protected speech? No, they absolutely do not. You have no First Amendment rights on a private campus. It's like being on someone's private land, uh, you can't show up on someone's private land and just protest. Uh, they can ask you to leave. And so, to their credit, many private universities have actually given that right to students and codified it and even created due process for students who maybe are censored. But they don't have to do that. That's the point. And they could have a regime change tomorrow at the top and go the other way. I mean, we have schools that are denominational-based, right, where you are forced to at least hear views that are specific to one religion, and they don't have to tolerate your religion. They don't have to tolerate, you know, a, a number of things about you. Sure, you still have your civil rights as a citizen, but it's about the forums that are created on that campus for you to speak that they can limit 
And so, you know, with athletics in particular on public universities, they've become so popular, they become so lucrative. And you also have young people, a part of those teams that are representing something bigger than just the school. They're also representing that financial stake that the university has. And so I've been very interested to see how student athletes are treated when it comes to their First Amendment rights. I do think on public schools, there has been a significant crackdown on how they can express themselves because they're representing the team. And they're often told that their rights take a back seat to what's good for the team. I'm not sure that's true, and and I'm not sure exactly what the law would say if a young student athlete at a public university you know, decided to do something like take a knee, which has become a flashpoint issue in the NFL, where you don't have First Amendment rights because you work for a private company. Not true if you're a student athlete. And we've actually had that controversy here in Georgia with cheerleaders at Kennesaw State. And the legislature very well could have passed this new law in response to that type of an event. Uh, I'm sure it had something to do with why we felt the need now to create new rules and give the Board of Regents more authority to regulate speech on campus. All right. Well, that gives me a good segue into our next segment. Um, So let's take another opportunity for a short break. Of course, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Times Talk on Georgia College Connections. Each week, we preview the upcoming conversation that takes place at noon Wednesday in the Georgia College Libraries. Those events are free and open to the public. So if you're enjoying our conversation tonight, please join us at noon on Wednesday for the Times Talk entitled More or Less Speech, Georgia's New Law and Your First Amendment rights on campus. That conversation will be facilitated by my guest today, Georgia College Mass Communication Professor Pate McMichael. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections here on WRGC 88.3 FM. Of course, we are previewing the first Times Talk of the fall 2018 season. We're looking at the idea of free speech on college campuses. In the next Times Talk entitled More or Less Speech, Georgia's New Law and Your First Amendment Rights on Campus, I'm talking today with Pate McMichael, a professor of mass communication at Georgia College. Uh, Now, as the title implies, Georgia's new law and your First Amendment rights on campus um, during this last session of the Georgia General Assembly, they weighed in on the debate by passing a bill that would attempt to, I guess, regulate the way universities foster free speech. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this Senate Bill 339? This is a a piece of legislation that I think is a response to the controversies that have erupted across the nation when it comes to college students' First Amendment rights. It has a number of components to it that seem to be reaffirming rights that you already have as a uh, citizen of the United States. Um, It recognizes that freedom of speech is important, that it's protected for all people, and that universities are places where, you know, those rights need to be respected. But I think the part that made news is where we begin to see some discussion, and I'll just read from the law itself. It says, The Board of Regents shall establish a range of disciplinary sanctions for anyone under the jurisdiction of the state institution of higher learning who is found by his or her conduct to have interfered with the Board of Regents' regulations and policies relevant to free speech and expression on the campus. And so... What I find interesting there is that there are potentially going to be new ways to punish people who do not respect the Board of Regents' policies on free speech. That's a little different than respecting the Supreme Court's definition of free speech. So if the Board of Regents comes up with policies that are uh, narrower than what you would expect to have as a right you know, in any other public setting, You could potentially have a student 
who faces repercussions, potentially expulsion. That's something that's happening in Wisconsin. They have a three strikes law. And I think that would raise some constitutional issues for the person being disciplined. They might even challenge this piece of legislation in court and ask, is it constitutional? It's strange to me because there has been so much controversy about some of these Title IX hearings that students have related to sexual assault. And those have become flashpoints in Georgia as potentially places where students don't have complete due process. This compels the university to create some due process for anyone punished, but it's unclear what that due process would be. We already have due process guaranteed to us by the Supreme Court through the Constitution. So it's almost like we're creating two separate systems, you know, the system that applies to all citizens and then a special system now for speech on campus. Why we need to punish students who don't maybe respect other people's right to free speech and not just apply existing laws, right? Like laws that say you can't assault people, you can't burn things down, you can't destroy public property. We still have those laws. We can just enforce them. This is an extra layer. This is going to be something different. And so it's not quite fleshed out what this is going to look like. But of course, Every year, according to this law, the Board of Regents will have to publish a report, and that first report will be due July 1st, 2019. So maybe at that time, we'll begin to see what our university's doing, and are they doing this consistently, and who's being punished, and for what exactly. And of course, um, we're speaking in more... I guess almost ambiguous terms because these rules have not been put in place by the university system of Georgia, by the Board of Regents, um, the board that oversees that system. Um, Is there any insight into how that process is taking place um, at the university system of Georgia level? There was a Board of Regents lawyer who spoke to campus the other day, and when asked about this law and this legislation, he didn't divulge a whole lot because uh, maybe it wasn't the subject of his conversation or maybe... They just haven't really got this nailed down yet. So there could be clear guidance out there that I'm unaware of, but I haven't seen it. And I certainly haven't received it as part of my employment at Georgia College, you know, any clear new guidance related to this. So I think it's going to be a wait and see approach for us and it could come down uh, maybe any any day. And, of course, um, there is the implication of some kind of deadline in here, as um, uh, you mentioned that this law uh, necessitates a report uh, to the governor and the Georgia General Assembly uh, on July 1st of 2019. Uh, Do you expect, from what you may have heard, that um, this will be clear by almost a year from today? I guess it has to be, or the Board of Regents would be not following the law, so they would be potentially outside this, the, the law by not doing what it compels them to do. Surely there will be something that comes along. The Board of Regents, of course, is a group that um, is going to reflect the values of the governor generally and, and his priorities. So we're in the middle of an election year, so it's hard to see how Governor Deal might be able to put his imprint on this or whether he'll just pass it off to whoever wins in November because obviously he would probably have tremendous ability to to get things moving if he finds it to be, you know, a legacy issue for him. So I'll be paying attention to that. Will it be something that Governor Deal wraps up before he's out, or will it be something that the Board of Regents takes its time and, and maybe implements in the spring with, you know, great clarity and clear guidance? And he defines things like due process. Uh, you know, we don't traditionally have trials and due process on campus the way you do in the court system. So it almost appears as if we're creating a new layer of of, uh, governance on on public universities. And and might you pause for a moment at um, these conversations about due process? Uh, You drew an allusion to the way that uh, sexual assault is being handled on campus. That, of course, is an an issue that affects every single campus, but it also is being decided upon at the national level through the U.S. Department of Education and the guidance they're putting forth. Can you just uh, talk a little bit more about the idea of due process on campus uh, versus due process um, within an actual court of law? Yeah, I mean, the due process 
that we have when it comes to law enforcement is the same. You know, if, if the Georgia College police decide to arrest a student and charge him with a crime, then that student will enter, you know, the traditional system and, and have an opportunity to fight the charges. But there are times where the police may not charge someone with a crime but might refer them to student judiciary, which is a democratic type of setup where uh, students have some input on how other students get punished, right, for things that are not crimes, things that are maybe against the you know honor code at Georgia College, something that every student agrees to and signs. But when it comes to sexual assault, there are other layers. There's federal legislation that requires uh, almost secret hearings where the evidence is heard about a, a potential sexual assault. And even though it might not rise to the level of a crime, could lead to expulsion or punishment for someone who's being treated as a, a perpetrator. And so that's been extremely controversial, and the Trump administration has expressed its willingness to maybe scrap that, which, again, would probably take action by Congress because it is a, a statute. And so this seems to almost do what the Title IX law does, create a, another tribunal on campus with judge and jury type of power, but without having to really go through the traditional process of charging someone with a crime and then moving forward from there. And is there anything about a person's status as a student that holds them to a higher or lower threshold um, within regards to due process? I.e., is there a, a assigning away of any rights or the accumulation of any um, additional rights uh, by, in fact, you being a student? I certainly don't think you're signing away any rights to be a student. You might be agreeing to uphold, you know, things like academic honesty, right? You you know, if you plagiarize, um, the university can punish you for that. Now, something that may not generally be against the law in a different setting, but given this uh, different context of the university, it rises to a higher level of, right. of offense. And there's a way to discipline that. The way, same way there's that way to do that in, in high schools and other, you know, academic environments that are publicly funded. But, you know, here, because of the First Amendment, um, asking students maybe to waive their right to counter-protest, which does appear to be uh, a significant concern to the legislature, that, to me, if you start punishing kids for doing things like turning their back to speakers or heckling at a, a, a rally, but you don't have them arrested or you don't go through a traditional due process scenario and you try to then you know, kick them out or harm them in some way, could lead to a lawsuit, right? It could lead to a challenge to this law. I think in my mind that's the danger here is that this could get tied up in the courts because it may or may not be legal to punish students without actually pointing to some kind of criminal conduct that they've done, uh, like destroying property or committing a violent act. Th those things are illegal. We don't need new laws for that. Uh, but this seems to be a gray area where maybe certain conduct done by a student or another person involved with the university, an administrator, faculty member, could get them in hot water in a way that it wouldn't through the traditional legal system. Well, in a sense, at coming back to that question, do you surrender a certain right uh, to be within this context? I mean, because it's setting up that scenario as seemingly um, by having a separate procedure. <laughs> I, it does seem like you would need to surrender something here because if I'm expected to be using my First Amendment rights vocally and expressing myself the way the First Amendment guarantees me the right to do, um, you know, I would just ha expect to have my full First Amendment rights, uh, particularly on a college campus because it is publicly funded and it does have uh, a free speech area where, you know, folks are supposed to be allowed to have vigorous debates. And we see this on campus. You know, we have controversial speakers um, throughout the semester and students will engage with them. And, and you know, I don't remember a situation where violence ever broke out, but certainly it's plausible, right? Who then gets to assign blame in a situation like that? You know, 
who throw the first punch, right? In the in Charlottesville, that was very difficult to determine at times because you did seem to have organized groups coming in. Uh, I think now it's much clearer that the original violence was predicated by the white nationalists and the white supremacists. But again, in the fog of this, how does the university start taking action without doing a competent investigation? Who's going to do that investigation? How can we guarantee that everybody will be investigated in a content-neutral way as this law demands? I just don't know that universities are equipped to sort of put that kind of procedure in motion. Well, we're going to take another short break, but if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections. We, again, are having another of our Times Talk conversations. This week, the Times Talk will be entitled More or Less Speech, Georgia's New Law and Our First Amendment Rights on Campus. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Georgia College Mass Communication Professor Pate McMichael. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. It is, it is the beginning of a new semester on the Georgia College campus. It is also the beginning of a new season for the Times Talk at Georgia College. Uh, this is our partnership that we collaborate with the American Democracy Project to bring the weekly Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. Um, again, I want to invite you out at noon on Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library to join in the live portion of this discussion. This week, that discussion is entitled More or Less Speech, Georgia's New Law and Our First Amendment Rights on Campus. I'm joined today by Georgia College Mass Communications Professor Pate McMichael. Now, we've talked a lot about uh, this topic today. Uh, Even during our breaks, we've talked. um, The conversation has continued. Um, But I'm just uh, curious. We could talk a lot longer, but uh, where does this leave us with the exercise of free speech on college campuses? Uh, It's a great question. It's a question that the Supreme Court has been deciding over quite a long period of time. You know, universities can regulate speech based on the manner of the speech, uh, the place where it occurs, and uh, of course, the time at which it occurs. And so we don't have a right to take away other people's rights. And so that's why we have free speech zones now on campus. And at Georgia College, Iris is out by the flagpole in front campus, which I think is a great place for it because it's a big area and it could tolerate, you know, a lot of people. Also widely accessible by those who may not be college students. Yes. You you know, so again, this is for all citizens and you are allowed to go there and be heard. And it doesn't matter who you are. Now, the university does like to know who's coming and they they sometimes will ask for reservations because if you show up and someone else is there that's a problem but at the end of the day that place is just there and anybody can go and speak and if no one's using it now then you can go again you might get kicked out because someone else reserved it later but that's an absolute open public forum is what it's called in law it's an open public forum for everybody now then we have limited public forums And those are places where rights change depend on whether you're in a position to have more rights, like the student newspaper. The editors of the student newspaper on our campus are allowed to determine their own content without restriction from the administration. But you as a student can't demand to have your story published there if you're not a part of the newspaper, if you don't go to the meetings, if you don't follow the rules. You can't say you're being censored because your story didn't get published. But if you're an editor there and you've taken on the leadership role, you have very strong First Amendment rights. The classroom, of course, is more like a non-public forum, a place where nobody can come in there and start protesting because the teacher has to have discipline to teach, and that's what students are paying for. So it can be a misnomer. People think, well, it's a public building. I can go anywhere I want, do whatever I want. That's not true anywhere. There are just spaces where you have more or less rights and forums where you have more or less rights. And unfortunately, that is not well known by most people. But 
I think it does create a pretty fair system that encourages speech. Um, it allows everybody to be heard. Where it seems to be running afoul of politicians and administrators is when that speech gets tense and when there's two competing voices in the same room together. You know, violence is illegal, but we do probably feel like it's more likely that we're going to see a more violent situation and people are trying to be proactive. It's just how far do you go to prevent violence because you can ironically lead to censorship and that's something I don't think anybody wants to see because people have been censored unfairly. Universities have overreacted at times in the name of security. And, of course, the tension between freedom and security is not new, and it's not going to change because we want it to, right? That's a, a, a foundational problem in a democratic society. Well, we're coming to the close of our conversation today, so I want to pose that uh, perennial last Times Talk question. Oh, what do you hope your audience takes away from this Times Talk on free speech in the college campus? I hope people take away the fact that they do have broad First Amendment rights, that they should use them. They should use them understanding that your First Amendment right is not a right to engage in violence or break the law or do things that are already illegal to do. Of course, we want everybody to listen more and talk less because it seems like one of the problems here is that we want to shout everybody down. We don't necessarily want to give people the chance to be heard or have a civil debate. At the end of the day, though, there's no legal requirement that you have to be civil, and there's also no legal requirement that you have to respect all voices because, let's be honest, there are voices that are not worthy of respect. There are voices out there that are historically dangerous and have led to violence or wars. And so in these times where the country's divided, Students need to know their rights. They need to exercise them. And they also need to stand up for themselves when they feel like their rights are being threatened. Well, Pate McMichael, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about uh, these rights as they are written absolutely and implied and misunderstood on the Times Talk on Georgia Comms Connections. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we were previewing the Times Talk conversation entitled More or Less Speech, Georgia's New Law and Your First Amendment Rights on Campus. I was joined in the studio today by Georgia College Mass Communication Professor Pate McMichael. He will be facilitating this next Times Talk conversation, which will take place at noon Wednesday in the Georgia College Library. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections, and I want I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.